Do you have a pre thing? Did you want to yeah. talk about? Yeah. That thing? You probably know what I'm going to talk about. Well, you sent it to me, first of all. And then after you sent it to me, I went on and it was literally like breaking news everywhere. Yeah. Not that it's going to actually do anything, but um, it is what it is. It's news is news. Yeah. And it's fringy, kind of. Not really. It's fringy in the sense that nothing's going to happen of it. Yeah. At least for a long time. It's true. You see all these breaking news things and then nothing really comes of it. Yeah, but I mean, part of it is the process it has to go through and for how long it is and how short our media window is for attention. The Mm -hmm. actual conclusion barely ever gets reported on. True. We do have a very short attention span. And I guess it is apt to say at this point, unfortunately, that Stephen Donziger has had his sentencing hearing and he was Mm -hmm. sentenced to the maximum time under the law of six months in jail. Now, he is going to be appealing that because that is a fairly significant penalty. I thought it fairly interesting that I think it was only a couple of days before he was set to go into sentencing. That's what he went into, right? The sentence here, yes. When he went into sentencing, the UN had ruled that what's been happening to him is I don't don't quote me on this. I'm not a lawyer. I'm just paraphrasing in my own Chelsea language. It wasn't cruel and unusual, but it was like should crime against humanity. Yeah, that was it. And that he shouldn't have been sentenced to jail and he had already done more than enough. Like it shouldn't have been happening. And they didn't take that into consideration at all. Yeah. So for those out of the loop, Stephen Donziger, I would highly encourage you to go back to our Ecuador case. It is entitled the Ecuador case. It's fairly early on in Journey to the Fringe, where Stephen Donziger helps the Ecuadorian government and country itself fight big oil and gas, aka Chevron. They did succeed, but it's gone very poorly since then. They've never collected a dime of the $9.5 billion settlement that had come to in the courts. Stephen Donziger is in court right now under a RICO claim, which is basically treating him like a Don of the Mafia for bringing corrupt allegations against Chevron in Ecuador. In the process so far, there was a discovery period where he was required to turn over his laptop and all information on it, to which he said no, because I have other clients information on this. Can I just interject quick? Would that be a normal process in a courtroom? So discovery And turning over particular items is something that's fairly common. However, generally, if something is requested and the other lawyer or the other side says, no, you can't have this, it will be appealed and they'll discuss it in the court Mm -hmm. in a sidebar as to whether or not that should be entered as evidence or be turned over for discovery. Generally, what would happen, this particular item is controversial because it was his personal laptop, which had other clients' files and information on them that are covered, and especially information on it that will be covered by solicitor-client privilege between Don Zegre and his own client, Ecuador. He should have been offered the opportunity to appeal that at least, But instead of that, he was held in contempt of court. For the contempt of court so far, he was held on house arrest for over 280 days. He was disbarred. 
and will now serve six months in jail. I said 280, it's 780 days. So he's been oh in my God. court arrest. He's been on house arrest for over two years. But can a court actually find somebody in contempt of the court if they're going against client confidentiality? In particular cases, yes. But that's something I don't want to get into on this Yeah, episode. probably just me drawing it out because I'm curious now. Can't they just ask for the files they want? That would require Like if you them- have files in relation to this, like give yeah. them to me. But first off, that requires a particular trust in the person turning them over. You need to trust that if you ask for all files pertaining to X, Y, and Z from this client, that requires a particular amount of trust from the person handing those over, saying but that, that also okay, here you go. Requires a certain amount of trust of the person looking at the files with client confidentiality. Yeah. So it kind of goes both ways. Yeah. And then the other part of it, too, is at least in Canada, uh, solicitor client privilege is the highest level of privilege of any document Hmm. basically held to the point of the only way you are required as a lawyer to break it is if your client provides imminent threat of committing a substantial crime. Like, let's just say you're a family lawyer, your client comes in and you have fairly reasonable belief that he means everything he's about to say and says, you know what? I've got a gun in my car. I am going to go shoot my ex-wife. She Hmm. is too much of a hassle. I'm going to go do that. That is a situation where you can break solicitor client privilege. Outside of that, it's a big gray area where the actual line is. And of particular note, um, in most situations, if it is close to that threshold, the judge will go over it with the lawyer to determine if it actually needs to be released. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, but that didn't happen here. So no. this, and I did learn more about Don Ziger being disbarred from the New York Bar Association. That was one of the penalties that this judge had given him in this case too. Was to be disbarred? To be disbarred, yeah. So disbarred, still on house arrest for over 780 days, six months in jail. He says, I've never looked at it. The longest house arrest sentence for contempt of court prior to this for a lawyer was 90 days in New York. That is just crazy. And I just yeah. can't believe overall, I mean, now we're looking at something that just is seems so ridiculous. But you look at it and you look at somebody who is actually standing up for these people in Ecuador and what a corporation was doing to the earth and these people. And it's now come back onto American soil and this is what happens. It's pretty disgusting to me. But that's that update. There is one other thing I wanted to talk about, which wasn't this. Whoops. <laughs> this is, I think I'll call it the trifecta at this point of papers that have been released. As of this weekend of the first week of October, there has been a drop of what is being dubbed the Pandora Papers. Now, the Pandora hmm. Papers are related somewhat, at least in naming style. I haven't read them fully yet or at all. Sorry, I should keep that up front. (laughs) So I don't know how they are, but um, they are being touted as the third coming of the Panama Papers. Mm -hmm. Which I think we have on our list of things. Yeah, and and I think that would make a good trilogy once this stuff all comes out is to cover the Panama Papers after them, the Paradise Papers and to finish it all off the Pandora Papers. Mm -hmm. The Pandora Papers being the largest document dump of all three 
at least just amount of documents that it pertains to. Of it, again, it's uh, a part of the ICIJ, that is the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, had a collaboration of 600 journalists in 117 countries and territories who went over 11.9 million documents exposing a secretive financial universe that benefits the wealthy and the powerful. This investigation that they've been working on, which did include the Washington Post, is an investigation into the expose of the offshore system that government leaders, billionaires, and criminals often use to hide their assets. Within hours of publication, at least eight national governments promised to launch their own inquiries into the financial activities revealed in the papers. And around the world, political players named in the investigation face criticism for lavish spending and opaque practices. I absolutely love this. There's many political figures involved in this, mainly one of them being the Czech Prime Minister, Andrei Babis. Well, I also saw some names and such as other, Putin and Trudeau. Yeah, I haven't seen Trudeau. I can't confirm that one. I haven't seen Putin either. I wouldn't be surprised. I've seen Putin in prior ones, and especially the Russian higher-ups. But I haven't seen those specific names in this one. But the Prime Minister... Andrei Babas is up for re-election this week. And he suggested that this drop was an effort to influence the Czech election. Hmm, interesting. He didn't say whether or not they were true or not. He just said that, oh, look at them trying to sway the Czech election here. (laughs) But I will give you some more facts on this. The Pandora Papers pertains to 29,000 offshore bank accounts and trusts that are held by 130 billionaires, at least as listed in the Forbes magazine. And many public figures, many multimillionaires, many famous individuals, including figure skaters in Canada, somehow. Interesting. Pakistan, Mexico, Spain, Brazil, Sri Lanka, Australia, and Panama are all launching inquiries in the wake of this to figure out what's actually going on. So this is the early days of the Pandora Papers. They have not dropped all the information yet. It's going to be coming in waves. Today, this weekend was really just the first mention of it. So there's not a lot of names out yet. But we'll Mm -hmm. keep our eye on this. And particularly, we will be doing an episode series on these three different papers as this continues. Okay. Chelsea, I don't know how much you know about the other two papers. Do you know anything? Not a whole lot, no. Okay. It'll be an interesting dive, I think, once we get to it. I've read up a lot on the Panama Papers. I'm going to have to do my research on the Paradise Papers. I've never even heard of of the Paradise Papers. Panama Papers are 2014. I believe the Paradise Papers are 2018. So it's kind of right in the middle. Mm -hmm. But I had to do more research onto that one for sure. Some good did come out of the Panama Papers, but it was very subtle and unfortunately looks not as good as everything that should have come out of it. And it is true that more should have come out of it but yeah let's let's keep our eye on that one and especially make a note that we will be coming back to that okay bookmark good and um, it is now saved in the journey to the fringes look back at this please yeah epilogues <laughs> somebody remind us and with that chelsea would you like to get on to our halloween bonanza yeah let's get spooky unexplained to the mundane. Join us on our journey to the fringe.
abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Uh, what? Um, according to mythology, that's the inscription over the gates of hell. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, mm -hmm. where the spooks are spectacular. The spelling is sporadic and spurious, and the speakers are always in spandex. Yeah. I am one of your spandex-clad speakers, Taylor, here with the other one. Elsie. Today, we thought we would delve a little bit into the concept of an afterlife, particularly a concept of a the bit. underworld or hell. Mm -hmm. Now, basically, as long as civilization has been around, we've always contemplated another side, a place that we often think about never can quite reach, because this is where our ancestors go. These are where the people that before us have gone. Yeah, it's interesting when you start thinking of where the concept came from. I even get to it when you're thinking of like the Bible. I guess like I guess people just want to know that there's more than just this mortal life that we're living I guess is where Bibles and religion come from but then I think think of hell and I think people just want like to know that bad people go somewhere special for the bad people and that is just like a special thing particular to a select few of religions too there's not always a bad place there's just a place that people go true true that yeah it's always just been a way to explain what happens after death at least in my mind. Yeah. It very well could be correct in how they've interpreted it. My guess is not so much, but we will at least talk about the idea of being able to get to these places from our mortal coil. Yes. We have looked at a select few from around the world, what we will call the gateways to hell. In some of these situations, they are very literal interpretations of that phrase. In others, it's more of an explanation of old religions. In some situations, maybe it truly is a portal to the other side. <gasps> but with that, I think I shall start us off with the most literal interpretation of a gateway to hell. Now, Chelsea, have you ever heard of a country called Turkmenistan? Yes. Okay. I now, think I think I have. Is that where is that where Borat's from? No, he's from Kazakhstan. Okay. It's around that area though. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's in the stands, which means yeah. <laughs> country in Arabic. <gasps> I didn't know that. What if I were to tell you that Turkmenistan has something called the gateway to hell? Interestingly enough, it actually mm -hmm. has absolutely nothing to do with hell. It is not something religiously associated with anything. And it is fairly new. This is in the middle of the Karakum Desert, which covers about 70% or 350,000 kilometers of the area of the wow. country of Turkmenistan. And it is home to this strange human-made natural phenomenon which is a weird way to describe it, but it makes sense. Rainfall in this desert is rare with only 70 to 150 millimeters of rain per year. And the Gate of Hell in Turkmenistan was created in 1971 by a mistake when a Soviet drilling rig accidentally punctured into a massive underground natural gas cavern and it caused the collapse of the entire drilling rig into the cavern. Yike. Once this hole was created, geologists intentionally set it on fire to prevent the spread of methane gas. So that's what they're drilling for and the hole caved in. So the gas is going to start leaking out and if any 
anybody were to go into that area, they basically suffocate because methane's one of those odorless gases that can suffocate you. I thought methane smelled like farts. That's intentional. We add that smell so that you know when you're smelling methane. Really? Yeah. Oh. So instead of letting that happen, they lit the hole on fire so that basically no methane gets out. And they thought that this would go on for a little while until the methane ran out in the area. And it has just... been going on for 50 years now. So it's just like a limitless supply of methane. I wouldn't say limitless, just a large supply of methane. Hell. They thought it would burn for about a few weeks. And it's been burning nonstop since 1971. Wow, that's a lot of methane. Yeah, and that hole is fairly large. It's 69 meters or 226 feet That's in like diameter. a huge bonfire. And the actual depth is 30 meters deep. Mm-hmm. About 100 feet. And it is also crumbling at the edges. So it actually gets bigger every year as well. Yike. At this point, nobody knows how much longer it's going to be burning either. So it could die out tomorrow. It could go on for another 100 years. I My bet's on that. Okay. 100 years. It is. If you've heard of Turkmenistan for any like tourism destinations, this is generally what you've heard of. <laughs> It's the most common reason for foreign tourists to come visit Turkmenistan. And you can actually go camping right around the edge of the gates of hell. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's probably not the worst out there, to be honest, for tourism. It's probably not the best. And in fact, they've even installed Western toilets in that area because <laughs> they know who's coming there and they know they don't like SWAT toilets. Yeah. Funny enough, the actual country of Turkmenistan does not advertise this thing at all once you get there. I read an article on it from somebody who actually went and saw this. They stayed at a hotel in Ashgabat and there was no information about the gates of hell. Instead they put up all the other things. It's like the UNESCO World Historical Sites. Of yeah, Mar I would Misa assume so though. And Cunha Urgent. Those all had like big billboards on all the highways for you to go see. Nobody advertises about the gates of hell inside Turkmenistan, which is super interesting because it's the other way around in the rest of the world with this. Yeah, well you want to make money off of it, right? Everybody wants to capitalize no, on it they, but you would think they'd want to make money off it but once yeah. you get there like but i mean they're probably proud of their country and that's probably not the like drawing factor between I, yes. to bring you in probably guess, yeah. i'm just assuming i don't know anything about and that makes sense now that i think about it, it is a temporary site yeah like eventually but not only that happen. i mean they probably think that they have much better sites to see yeah. than just a burning hole well and it is a natural disaster too <laughs> Yeah, like technically it is it is contributing to climate change. Yeah, exactly. It is the biggest attraction. The crater will impress from the first second you arrive, even during the daytime with the hot sun blazing. But it's only when the sun goes down and it's pitch dark, that the crater really deserves its famous name. That's from the article from somebody who went as a tourist there. Yeah, that's the door to cool, hell. Though. Turkmenistan lights up the place and it can be seen for miles around. Hmm. There's no direct transportation there, though, directly to the gates of hell. It's important to note that all buses heading north from Ashgabat to Dashogos drives past Darvaza village. And this is where you will have to get off on your bus heading to Dashagas. And you must do the same if you're traveling to Dashagas to Ashgabat. It's interesting, though, that they had like a nice walkway there and they have Western toilets. Yeah, well, and it's mostly because they know who's going there, I think, and they don't want to advertise that to everybody. Yeah, just Westerners. Yeah, and I guess we just are very crazy about like our natural Burning disaster holes. things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get to. It looks absolutely amazing. It does. In a very weird way, but there's nothing around it. And there's probably better things to see in Turkmenistan. But if you're looking to go see a literal gate of hell, at least 
a named gate of hell. If I this was in the area, I'd definitely go see it. Do you have any plans to go to Ashgabat? Not currently. Okay. But I That's mean, fair. it's, it's not the off pandemic. the table. Yeah. Do you? Not at the moment. I've always wanted to go see the kind of the middle part of, or the less known part of the Soviet empire. Because like yeah. Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, all that stuff. It was all part of the Soviet Union at the time. Interesting. And they are very different countries in that way. That's where I end on the Gates of Hell in Turkmenistan. Chelsea, do you want to talk about one of yours now? Yeah. And we can swap off. I'm going to do Fengdu because I'm going to leave my best for last. Feng do aka the city of ghosts as soon as i saw this one i called it immediately because i've been here which is the only reason i called it because i can speak from experience of what i didn't really know all of this history when i went there admittedly but i'm gonna tell you about it now so it's i would absolutely i would love to see that rock carving on the mountainside it is absolutely amazing yeah so that is the ghost king I think that you're talking about and he's a giant face in the hillside which holds a Guinness World Record title as the biggest sculpture carved on rock and he can be seen from all around the city. I know that you see him coming in. I did the Yangtze River Cruise so I know that you see him from the River Cruise. He's gigantic. So So, just just so we're all on the same page that's the Yangtze River the the Yellow River. Oh I thought you said it another way. Yangtze. Yangtze? (laughs) Yangs. Oh, yeah, okay, that's I've how yeah, it, it totally basically wrong. means yellow. That's what it is. Yellow. Okay, yellow. you're probably gonna have to correct me a few times on here. That's okay. I'm glad somebody can though. This is situated on the north bank of the Yangtze River on Ming Mountain, which is about 170 kilometers downstream from Chongqing. Fengdu. So, and sorry, I just want to make sure it's between Chongqing and Chengdu, right? Yeah, I don't know for sure. Okay. I can't remember, That's and I didn't make that note. But no, if, you're, um, if generally if you're describing something from Chongqing, that means it's prior to Chengdu. Downstream. Because Chengdu is bigger than Chongqing. I'm pretty sure, because we got on the river cruise in Chongqing, and I'm pretty sure we went towards Chengdu. Don't hold there, me to that. Yeah, it's all within Sichuan province of China, which yeah. is a very... I love Sichuan province. It's more commonly known as Sichuan province, but I like their spaces. Yeah, they have the best food in the world, in my opinion. Uh, Chongqing is known as the spicy capital of Sichuan, mm-hmm. but I always love Sichuan as a province has a motto, and it is China is a country known for its food, and Sichuan is a state known for its flavor. Yeah. Which is is a complete backhand to the rest of the country. I mean, I can get behind that. I love Szechuan food is like pretty good. I love all Chinese food. So it's hard for me to say that the rest of the food is all. You know what, though? They have their spice and I can't get enough spice. I love Fengdu consists of a large complex of shrines, temples and monasteries dedicated to the afterlife, which combines the beliefs of Confucianism, Taoism and Buddhism. You say Taoism? Taoism. Taoism. It's it's just it's it's some letter in between D and T that we don't necessarily have in English. So it's Taoism known as the belief in the way. Okay. The city's been around for just about 2000 years and the story behind it dates back to the Han Dynasty, which dates between 206 BCE and 220 AD when two imperial officials named Yin and Wang escaped from their emperor to Ming Mountain to practice Taoism and in the process they became immortal. (laughs) 
<laughs> Long story short. Oh, the man. <laughs> and, sorry. I just, I always love that uh, Taoism, so many of its stories are about immortal hermits living in the mountains. Really? Yeah. I didn't it's know almost this. a lot of it has to do with the idea of embracing your true humanity and going away from the knowledge that is outside the body. A lot of it also is the unattainable that is the hermit lifestyle in the mountains. That's nice. Yeah. The combination of Yin and Wang's names means king of hell. So Fengdu is famous for its traditional architecture and elaborate craftsmanship. And I will share, of course, on the social media, I have some good photos of Fengdu when I was there. So I'll share that on social media. The statues, structures, buildings, etc. all relate to Daiyu. It's probably not even close what I'm saying, which is the realm of the dead slash hell and Naraka, which is hell or purgatory. And they are concepts from Chinese mythology and Buddhism. The landscape and the structures and statues are just absolutely beautiful. There are some statues carved of stone depicting some pretty epic body language and facial features, some pretty demonic, and there are scenes of further statues which are super vibrant and colorful, and again depicting some pretty epic stuff. Again, I'll post this on social media and I'm just going to touch on it in a little bit. I just have a question while we're Mm -hmm. at this point were all of these statues carved 2000 years ago or are they kind of a build-up over the years no they wouldn't have been placed there 2000 years it ago. was just founded I mean, then. it was founded then and this i mean what i said about the han dynasty goes back to that time but the structures definitely don't date back to that time and there's a whole history fengdu is kind of this place within fengdu county so i don't specifically know if this relates to fengdu county or the mountain or what came first and there's this whole cool history with the water level rising from them doing the three gorges dam so they had to move fengdu (gasps) county Oh, yeah, and it's got the ghost towns. Yeah, so it's just like whole epic like thing of a county that has this ghost town up on the mountain and like it's it's pretty cool. And there's some pretty disturbing things with these, like, you walk up immediately up on the mountainside and there's these epic statues of demons and stuff. And then you get up and there's these nice, like, towers and stuff. And they're all depicting some pretty crazy stuff. I thought this was really cool. The city's modeled to resemble, I wish I could do this justice, you guys. I'm doing my best. Yodu, which is the capital of D.U., which in Chinese mythology is the capital of hell. So that's what the city's modeled to be. And Chelsea, I, quick question. Is it spelt Y-O-U? Yeah. So it's Yo. Yo-do. Yo. Yo-do. Yeah. Um, and D-yo. And Dio. And Ming Mountain is also home to Naha Bridge, which is said to connect the mortal realm to the underworld. And the city is said to be divided into two parts, heaven and hell. Like I said before, the paths are lined with statues of ghosts and demons, reminders of what awaits for the wicked in the next life. Like I said, there's like nice stone statues. They're beautiful statues depicting these crazy ghosts and demons. And so you get to the top and there's these buildings that you go to and there's dioramas that depict hellish scenes of what happens in the afterlife to those who haven't lived good lives. This guy here is like some of the statues that you see walking up on the pathway. Oh, I saw him. 
I remember him, this guy, walking up. Was there a dragon? Go back up. Go back up. Oh, I remember these guys. How could you forget those guys? Oh, there's a pagoda. Are all yeah. of these there or are these just kind of? This pagoda? is a pagoda. Yeah, that's there. These guys are there. This is like the diorama that they're talking to. So if you see this guy's taking a saw to this guy's anus. Oh. You see that? Like right here? Sawing him in half. Oh, I missed that part. I just saw that guy like thrusting down with his spear. This guy? Yeah. They're pretty disturbing stuff. And I found it pretty entertaining, actually. But like, look at the colors on them. Yeah. They're pretty vibrant. And so these are like little like action figure. They're very small. They're all like, it's all like really morbid stuff. If you can see all along here. Like, I don't know what's going on here. And then these guys, these are like life size. These guys. So as you walk in. This guy was really disturbing to me, the horse. He's the but only one you... wearing a mask, it looks like. Yeah, when you walk in there, these guys line both sides. And then you see like these these small... Oh, here's the horse. Like they're super colorful, like really well done. But then like these things are just little, little, little like dioramas. But it's super beautiful and lush. Like this is all... That would be from the... I already forgot how to say it. I've been saying Yangtze for so long. Yangtze. Yeah. But it's like a super, I'm going to end this now. And I almost hung up our conversation. Okay, good. I did it right. But it's like super beautiful landscape. And then there's these, all these like super like disturbing things depicting hellish what is essentially what happens in the afterlife to those who haven't lived good lives. So they have very creative names for the landmarks around the city, including Last Glance at Home Tower, which is where once you enter the afterlife, they say you can go there to take one last look at your loved ones, ghost torturing pass, very nice things like that. There are scenes depicting glimpses into the workings of hell, as I just mentioned, obviously, if you were listening to me, if not, here you go again. Lessons imparted of good being rewarded with good and evil with evil. And according to Chinese beliefs, the dead must pass three tests before passing into the next life. Once they pass on, they come to Fengdu and they have to pass the next steps, which I actually did. You can do them when you go there. The first is the Bridge of Helplessness, which is a stone bridge built during the Ming Dynasty and is a test for good and evil. There are three arches, but only the middle arch is used for testing people. And there are different protocols for crossing the bridge based on sex, age, and marital status. And at the bridge, demons allow or forbid passage. Good will be allowed to pass while the evil will be pushed into the water below. Obviously, it's super touristy now. So they set it up with people dressed as demons. Oh, um, so pretty much everybody gets passed. Well, yeah. And they like pretend to like want to mess somebody up to throw them over. But then they let them go, right? I'm sure they're only allowed to throw over like three tourists a day or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it wouldn't be a bad job. The dead then proceed to ghost torturing pass. This is where the dead must present themselves for judgment before Yan Luo, Lan, Yan Lo Wang, who is a deity and official judge in Chinese religion of the underworld. And in the second process of the dead, there are large sculptures of demons. The third test is at the interest of Tianzi Palace, where the dead must stand on a stone on one foot for three minutes. And obviously, a good virtuous person will be able to do it with no problem. 
while an evil person will fail because they have no balance and will be condemned to death. Tianzi Palace is the oldest building and is 300 years old. So obviously when I say Fengdu is 2,000 years old, I guess here we get were answered that you asked me about. It was discovered at that or founded at that point. Yeah, so I guess it's based more on legend going back that long more than anything. But yeah, that's Fengdu. So I will post some pictures up on our social media if you want to go take a look at what I was just talking about from my personal travels of being here. Yeah, so I can continue or if you want to do yours. Let's do a swap. I've got two left. I'll go through Okay, my that's good because I have one left. Well, I think I'll go through my two just because I want okay. I do want to end on yours because I do think it is the going to be the most interesting of everything. We Mine's have. super cool. But I will move on to something along the lines of what you're just going from. And that is the idea of Shibalba. That is the Mayan underworld. In Mayan culture, there was always a belief in the three worlds. There was the heaven plane above the earth plane that they were on and the underworld below. And the underworld is where most souls ended up going. The underworld is where most souls go? Yeah, that was just like the realm above was for the gods and the realm below was for everybody else. And still, there were some gods underground. I like that. I've never heard that before. Okay. Yeah, I find it very interesting, too, because once you died, you had to traverse your way into the underworld, Shibalba. And the route was filled with obstacles, including rivers filled with scorpions, blood and pus, and houses shrouded in darkness or swarming with shrieking bats. The souls of the dead followed a mythical dog who could see at night down this path. Interesting. And in the minds of the Mayans, this was a very literal path that you could find on Earth. You can find many spots, most of them on the Yucatan Peninsula, where there are many ceremonies attributed to and sacrifices around caves or sinkholes into the ground and into the underworld that many people claim would be an entrance to Shibalba. Interesting. So you can find many articles spanning decades from people finding sinkholes and specifically finding either sacrificial bodies or vases or other sacrifices in the water in these caves. Hmm. Now, this can be incredibly treacherous because these are winding underground water caves, which are, if you've never been scuba diving before, never go scuba diving in a water cave. If you're Hmm. scuba diving in open water, never enter a cave because they are incredibly dangerous. But there are underwater archaeologists who do take this as a job and there are many places particularly in and around Chichen Itza that they purport to find the entrance to the Mayan underworld of Shibalba. Just to give you an idea this is an article describing an area they found a cave over five months they were revealing stone carvings and pottery left for the dead they believe this place to be Shibalba that is why we have found the offerings here the Mayans built a soaring period and elaborate palace in all the articles I read, they would give very general ideas of where it was, describing it by nearby pyramids. I did read this one article on Reuters, and it came from 2008 about finding a portal to the underworld in Mexico. CNN did an article on one. That's from 2018. Forbes magazine did one on that as well. And it's specifically talking about Chichen Itza near the Pyramid of El Osario, the larger pyramid of Kalking in Chichen Itza, again, with many holes into the ground that are sinkholes that were covered in sacrificial bodies at the bottom. That's very interesting. I've never heard that. It seems like 
Chichen Itza is very tied to this. And I'd yeah, never and, heard and, that before. And a lot of it has to do with particularly in that area. The Yucatan is the upward slope of the bottom of Mexico, the Yucatan Peninsula. And it is made from limestone. And it particularly has a lot of water caves, basically because there's underwater reservoirs from all the water that falls in this area. And this all flows and it creates rivers underground. Mm -hmm. And this creates sinkholes that open up. So there are caves, there are sinkholes. And because of this, if you are an underground believing society, when these things open up, they become sacred areas. Uh, okay, that makes and sense. Yeah, when geologists are looking for these caves, it's actually pretty easy after a rainfall because clouds will come out of these caves because of the high humidity. Mm. And because of that, too, the Mayans believed that these caves also contained the rain god. Okay. So it's one of the gods found in the underworld. There are many different iterations of entrances to the underworld in the Mayan Riviera, the Yucatan area. Throughout the Mayan, Aztec, Incan, and Olmec empires, there are many different entrances into underworlds. That's just one example of this. I guess that would make sense based on what you just said. Yeah. Now, that's where I end this one. If I were to ask you which ancient underworld do you have the most understanding of, what would you say? Haiti? Yeah, that's probably the most. It would be the Greek underworld, right? I guess so. Yeah, and part I of mean, that is... I that's our... the answer I went for, so yeah. I'm going to go with yeah. Yeah, so mythologically, at least from a Western point of view, we learn a lot growing up about Greek mythology, particularly Greek stories of the underworld, because it, it is a place... Hercules. Hercules goes there. It was huge. Um, Achilles goes there, gets dumped in the river Styx, becomes immortal. Yep. Which also happens to be where we all go when we die is the river Styx. Yeah, and it happens to be something that's huge in like pop culture. Yeah, and Disney, as made famous by yeah. the movie Hercules. Yeah. <laughs> for it had, it was in the public domain at the time of writing after being around for thousands of years. Yeah. As with most Disney things. Now, what if I told you, because it is a place that heroes went to, there are actually several places on Earth where you can enter the realm of Hades. I wouldn't doubt it. First up is a place called Cape Matapan. It is on the southernmost part of the Greek peninsula. And there are tales of the cave system there being how the hero Orpheus entered to retrieve his beloved love from the underworld. And importantly, where Hercules goes to retrieve the guard dog Cerberus. That's the one with three heads, right? Yes. And yeah. will let you enter, but will not let you leave. And that's one of Hercules's 12 tasks, I believe. Okay. I, I can't remember. He had a lot of tasks, <laughs> which just seems so precarious and tedious. Mm -hmm. In fact, it the does. Greek geographer of Pausanias wrote of the site, in the bend of the seaboard, one comes first to a headland that projects into the sea, Tenerum, with its temples of Poseidon situated in a grove, and secondly, nearby to the cavern through which, according to myth writers, Cerberus was brought up from Hades by Heracles. This southern tip of the mainland separates the eastern Laconian Gulf from the Messanian Gulf in the west. However, the Cape also provides the backdrop for a number of important myths and legends, and the ancient Greeks believed that a cave in the tip of the Cape was an entrance to Hades, the underworld of classical mythology. Here, according to stories, is the place where Orpheus entered the underworld in search for his lost love, Eurydice, 
when the hero Hercules passed down into the underworld, it was again through the Mattapan Caves. And these are places that you can actually go and visit, even today. There is rivers down at the bottom of it, uh, said to be where you crossed the river Styx and paid the two coins for ferry passage across. <laughs> However, when the Byzantine Empire arrived in Greece, they built a temple up in Cape Matapan and converted to the Christian faith. And to this day, the site is still used in religious service. Nearby visitors will find a bronze likeness of the poet, poet Arion riding a dolphin in the area. Because again, <laughs> this is also an area that is related to uh, Poseidon. That's one entrance to Hades. And then there is also in Turkey, what is called Plutonian at Heropolis. And this has to do with Hades? Yes, Pluto and Hades are the same person. Okay. Because one's Greek and one's Roman. Oh, okay. Plutonian also, or sorry, it's spelled P-L-O-U-T-O-N-I-O-N, Plutonian. I guess I'll try to say it Plutonian going forward. That translates roughly into English to Pluto's gates. So he's like a not good guy. Pluto's just the keeper of the underworld. Hades, Pluto. Okay, okay. They're, okay. they're not necessarily evil. They are not meant to be evil figures in Greek mythology, much like how death isn't necessarily an evil character in anything. It's just something doing its job. Associated with death. Yeah. yeah. This area, Pluto's gate at Heropolis, is described by several ancient writers, Strabo, Cassius, Dio, and Damasius. And it's a small cave, just large enough for one person to enter through a fence entrance, beyond which stairs go down, from which emerges suffocating carbon dioxide gas caused by underground geologic activity. Behind so you can't go down there like in real life. So this description of Pluto's gates. I mean, it would make sense at this point. Yeah, you can't enter you die. this area. <laughs> yeah, you will die. Like just a heads up, you can see the outside of this place. You will die if you enter because it has such a high concentration of CO2 gas coming that out of it. That makes sense just as a, yeah. you know, general like human standpoint yeah but behind three square meters of roof chamber is a deep cleft in the rocks through which fast flowing hot water passes releasing a sharp smelling gas mm -hmm. and because this gas was lethal it was thought that the gas was sent by pluto god of the underworld okay during the early years of Heropolis, the castrated priests of Sibyl, known as the Galley, descended into Pluto's gate, crawled over the floor to pockets of oxygen, or held their breath. Carbon dioxide is heavier than air and so tends to settle in hollows. They then came up to show that they were immune to the gas. People believed a miracle had happened and that therefore the priests were infused with superior powers and had divine protection. Wow. So these would be priests of Pluto. And they would say that because we were priests of Pluto, they were immune to the aversions that Pluto had sent out from there. And they were castrated? Yeah, they were not Gaelics, um, gelded. Okay. They are eunuchs. There's a surprisingly high number of words that describe a castrated human. <laughs> Yike. Okay. Yeah. Just like snow. <laughs> sure. <laughs> So what was Pluto's gates? It was an enclosed area of 2,000 square meters, which stood in front of the entrance of this cave, and it was covered by a thick layer of suffocating gas, killing everyone who dared to enter this area. And the priests would sell birds and other animals to visitors so that they could try out how deadly the enclosed area was. <laughs> Now that is true tourism, capitalizing on tourism. Yeah, visitors could. Take notes, oh. Turkmenistan. <laughs> Go on. Okay. 
<laughs> Visitors could, for a fee, ask questions of the Oracle of Pluto. This provided a considerable source of income for the Tentel, and entrance to Pluto's gate was considered off-limits during the Christian times. And mm. this is where it becomes interesting. No, sorry. It was always interesting, I should say. And I always have trouble getting rid of that word from my vocabulary. It was very interesting. Words. It was very interesting, especially that time where I tried to stop using the word interesting. Interesting. It was all very interesting. Yes. So the ancient historian Strabo described the gate as follows. Any animal that passes inside meets instant death. <laughs> Sorry. I threw in sparrows. <laughs> they immediately breathed in their last and fell. That's very sad. <laughs> That's very scientific. <laughs> I'm sorry for anybody who finds that appalling. It's ancient times and he's just whipping sparrows in a cave. I'm also wondering like what kind of state the sparrow was in where you're able to just like chuck it into a cave. <laughs> was it in a, it had to be in a cage. Who's to say at this point, like who, it, if it is this kind of times, who knows what they're doing to the sparrow in the first place? Yeah. It could have been in a cage. I agree with you. Like, I'm all for, we love animals, but it's actually. <laughs> hey, if I were to travel it's back 2,000 years funny. into the past, maybe I too would be chucking sparrows into a cave of carbon dioxide. <laughs> That's what your livelihood is depending on at well, that point. And, and most importantly, what better entertainment Entertainment is there not only entertainment but you got to make money like being yeah. like see it's safe oh well, but what else are you gonna do watch people succumb to plague yes i guess okay. if you're chucking sparrows into a cave i mean don't get me wrong the greek uh, the romans were very well known for their orgies but <laughs> <laughs> and please <laughs> go on for so long for a day Anyhow, yeah, are you gonna continue? <laughs> <laughs> Though the exact age of the site is currently not known, the nearby city of Heropolis was founded around the year of 190 BC wow. by the king of Pergamum, Eumenes II. You would think that they would figure it out pretty well. I don't know how much they were for exploring, but like if they were to be like, hey, a cave, and people started dying as they were entering the cave until well, they realized that sparrows could be chucked into the cave. Yeah, instead of, instead of instead just of wasting humans, human resources, yeah, sparrow resources. <laughs> yeah, but that also has a lot to do with the idea of Romans getting there. Does that make sense? The whole idea of this becoming so. a religious spot for a Roman god. Oh, I guess so. Requires Romans to be there. Yeah. But you never know. They could have discovered yeah, no, it in they the could first have been place and then the Romans took credit yeah. for it. Yeah, exactly. They could have been worshipping it as another god's yeah. thing at the time. It's just that... And then the Romans was yeah. like, no, this is... Also, if, if anybody is wondering, yes, Pluto, the planet, and Pluto, the god, are one in the same. And I'd assume they'd be named after the Roman yes. god, right? Yes, and the moon orbiting Pluto, Charon, which in fact doesn't necessarily orbit Pluto. They have some sort of weird mutual relationship of orbiting. Charon is the ferryman across the river Styx. Hmm, interesting. I guess a lot of the planets are based on Roman gods. Yeah, they all are, at least in English. If you look at any other language, it changes, especially if you get to Chinese. They named them all after elements, and they're all just stars. It's really hard for me oh, to cool. remember them all, except they all end in Shang, which means star. And I know that from a whitewater rafting trip I went on in Chiang Mai in Thailand, and we went with a Chinese couple who had also signed up that day, and... Just so that we can get this out of the way early on, they were absolutely useless 
paddlers. I hope they're not listening to this. And I also, really hope, but I also I believe, had no idea believe, that you went believe, whitewater rafting in Chiang Mai. Yeah, it was fantastic. Although kind of sad because you see elephants on the side of the river oh, and they no. were just part of the farms. Yeah. One thing I that was like fantastic that. was outside of that. It was a lot of fun. And Jen and I were both the best paddlers for the other two who were Chinese people who did not realize that whitewater rafting meant that you had to do some work. Mm-hmm. The female in the relationship, she knew very little English, but she knew how to say her name. And she said, I said, hi, I'm Taylor. And she said, Star, my name is Star and pointed up. <laughs> Can I also and, just say that there and is I knew a that thing. meant her name is Shing. <laughs> Do you remember that? Oh, that just all came together right there. And I tried to interrupt you. Yes, there was a thing. Remember, I don't know if you remember this when China put out like China put out like a news press that was like, when you go to other countries, please be on your best behavior. Oh, yeah. They had to do that for a while there because people were spitting everywhere. Not only that, but they're like peeing in weird places and stuff like that. Yeah. Which, yeah, yeah, that's a whole other conversation to have. I just wanted to put it out there to interrupt your story. Oh, good. Anyhow, back to toxic gases emitting from a cave. Yeah. This is a basically underground hot spring in this area. It's in Turkey. It's not a hot spring you'd want to go to because you both first can't get to it. And second, will die trying to get to it. You need a sparrow. Yes. Well, the sparrow is just for fun. You still can't get to it. Oh, (laughs) I wouldn't call that fun, but okay. But part of it was that these toxic fumes being emitted might give you some sort of hallucinogenics, per se, for priests to worship you as a god, which is why a temple opened up in this area. And animals were routinely thrown into the caves and pulled back out with ropes that had been tied to them as just part of the ritual. Archaeologists note that the fumes emitted from the caverns still maintain their deadly properties as they recorded passing birds that are attracted by the warm air suffocating after breathing the toxic fumes Mm. you can go visit this area and it's in the process of getting recreated at this time the ancient city of Heropolis near Pamukkale is in modern day Turkey's Danitsli province where this is located and the site was rediscovered in 1965 by an Italian archaeologist who published reports on its excavation throughout the decade In 2013, it was further explored by an Italian archaeologist led by Francesco D'Andrea, a professor of archaeology at the University of Salento. And as part of a restoration project, a replica of the marble statues of Hades and Cerberus were restored to their original places. The statue is known to have been there in ancient times. So right now, you can actually go revisit this place. And I do not think, unfortunately... Well, I don't know if unfortunately that's probably the wrong way to describe that. Let's let's change that up there. You cannot buy a sparrow to throw in to the toxic fumes just to see what happens. So it's changed. So unfortunately for you philosophers who want to describe these things for future endeavors. But, you know, I, I think it is good for the birds just mostly because they are dying out so fast right now. Yeah. But yeah, that is Pluto's gates in Turkey. And Greece. No, well, that's it. That's in Greece Turkey. The other, Pluto's Gr- no, uh, Cape Matapan is in Greece. Nice. These are all so, places yeah, two, that I'm going to put on my bucket to, list. Yeah, two entries to go see Hades or Pluto, who is the same person. So. Nice. Yeah. 
Okay. Anyhow, that ends my endeavor into Greek underworld. And I believe Chelsea's now going to do some fun in the new world. Yeah, yeah, which is New Orleans. So I did the Gates of Guinea in New Orleans, Louisiana. I know absolutely nothing about voodoo. Do you know anything about voodoo? Uh, I, I know some about voodoo, enough to know that a belief in voodoo helps voodoo work on you. It has a lot to do with Christian faith, just in the idea that, have you ever heard Santeria specifically in the song? Um, yes. Yeah, that is kind of the voodoo with Christian undertones in it. I had no idea even about what you just said. I could go into more, but I don't think you wanted to focus this episode on that. So. I didn't, but it's definitely something I'm going to look into now. Okay. Um. So I definitely picked two very much opposed, not opposing, just very different. Contrasting. Contrasting things or to juxtaposing. Look into. If you will. I really had to look into this because, number one, I didn't have any sort of bearing on voodoo at all. So I found it very confusing when I started to look into this and what the hell I was looking at. So I hope I do this justice in trying to relay this to you just because when I was reading it, I was very confused because I know nothing about voodoo. This is the Gate of Guinea. So in voodoo, Guinea is a portion of the underworld where souls reside. And P.S. I found this so interesting. Guinea's not like a hell per se where there's torture or punishment like where I was talking about with Fengdu. It's more like a murky transition area where spirits must pass through before reaching the deep waters where they meet their destiny and reunite with their ancestors. And Guinea is presided over by Loa, which is a spirit of resurrection, and he is known as Baron Samedi. <gasps> Baron Samedi? Yeah. Uh, oh, he seems like such a badass. He's like the party god. He's fantastic. He's, like, he's so cool. Baron Samedi is depicted as a skeleton with a top hat, and some other things you'll see him just as black with the skeleton outline. He has a top hat, a black tail coat, dark glasses, cotton plugs in his nostrils to resemble a corpse dressed and prepared for burial in Haitian style. And he also loves swearing and smoking cigars and drinking rum. He's the leader of the Gede, and I'm doing my best here. I believe this is gonna be French because it's based on Haitian voodoo which also has ties to African voodoo. Yeah. So these, just add a bit sorry. Yeah. Voodoo is heavily inspired by ancient practices of Africa brought over okay. by slaves and then okay. introduced, influenced by French customs as well as it is practiced in New Orleans predominantly where the Cajuns came in. Yes, and Cajuns have ties to Acadians, so I'm not really sure where it crossed between the two. Well, basically, they were kicked out of parts of the U.S., and they went to a part of the country that they thought nobody else would want to go to. Okay, but yeah, I didn't look into this much into it. I more looked into just the specific to the story I'm telling. And hell, it might make a fun episode just to look at the Acadians at some point. Well, like the Acadians the came from Canada. Well, they, they came from many parts, Canada being part of it. Yeah. And, and part they of it being nobody wanted, wanted the Acadians. Places. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just like the Mormons <laughs> and why the Mormons are in Utah. 
we're partially Acadian. <laughs> so Baron Samedi is a leader of the Gede, which are a family of Loa, which like I just said earlier, are spirits that embody the powers of death and fertility. And they dress like the Baron and are just as rude and crude as Baron Samedi. But Baron Samedi is the most charming out of all of these Lois. So Baron Samedi's the master of the dead. So just an aside, because I found this very interesting, in my very limited, if not non-existent, knowledge of voodoo, Baron Smeddy is a symbol of death and rebirth, so he is often called upon for healing by those near or approaching death, as it is only the Baron that can accept an individual into the realm of the dead, therefore he is also a giver of life. His powers are especially great when it comes to voodoo curses and black magic. Even if someone has been afflicted by a hex that brings them almost to the brink of death, they will not die if the Baron refuses to dig their grave. When somebody dies, he digs their grave and greets their soul after they have been buried to lead them to the underworld. So like I just said, this directly relates to that. Someone's not going to die if the Baron does not want to dig their grave. He also ensures that all corpses rot in the ground to stop any soul from being brought back as a zombie. However, not without a demand, which varies depending on his mood. He definitely demands a bribe. This could be followers simply wearing black, white, or purple, which are essentially the colors of mourning. A small gift, which includes grilled peanuts, rum, cigars, black coffee, bread, or sometimes he wants a full-on voodoo ceremony. Anyhow, I really did more than required, but I found the Baron particularly charming, just as Taylor got very excited about him yeah, as well. He, he is meant to be a very charming individual. It's, yeah. It's, um, he's the he's most a fun charming. character if you want to look into it like a, a, I a would weird like, like semi-god, demi-god, I guess. Yeah. I mean, once I started Googling him and I saw some pictures, it's definitely something that I've seen before, Baron Samedi. It's just nothing that I know anything about. Like, I've not known anything about Voodoo. And he seems like a particularly cool character. And I'm also going to get into a little bit more about him. I even might myself look more into him because I found this so interesting. But Baron Samedi hangs out guarding the crossroads between the two worlds of the dead and the living, which form portals to other worlds. The most important to all of these portals are the gates of Guinea. And according to tradition, the entrance to Guinea is a place that can be reached by mortals. Depending on who you talk to, the gates of Guinea are going to vary, just like most things based on death are. Some see the seven gates of Guinea as a metaphor for the seven days after death, which according to voodoo belief, the soul remains close to its corpse during which the deceased is at the highest risk of being zombified by hoodoo magicians. And it is during this period that the soul passes through one gate followed by another to be met by Baron Samedi at the seventh gate and escorted to the land of the dead. Death doesn't seem that bad if Baron Samedi is going to meet me there because he seems like a pretty cool guy. He definitely seems like somebody mm -hmm. you want to party with. 
He is. I mean, he doesn't seem like the Grim Reaper yeah. or like Hades or anything that well, you're like, I, oh my God, it, like, what am I doing? And it is very interesting that he is both the god of death and kind of recreation in life. I thought that was such a cool concept that he's, and you always see that like with tarot cards, like you see death is. It's both good and death bad. And it's, de- it's the end and recreation. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't see that like with the Grim Reaper or anything anything like that and when you explain it like i explained it like you can't die unless baron Samedi says that he's digging your grave like that's kind of such an interesting way to put it yeah and that um, i'd never heard before and in that way he seems kind of inviting i did not know that part about baron Samedi either i didn't know his connection with funerals and particularly of coffins because he's often depicted with a coffin yeah well he's the giver of life and death essentially yeah Yeah. and you can see it in the connection with that so i think that's so cool because you hear that with like the death card with tarot and things like that but you see a real connection here with why he's attributed with both which i thought was so interesting so back to the gates of guinea you see some people that think that it's not a place that can be attained in life and then there's others that believe that the gates of guinea have a physical counterpart and can be found in New Orleans through seven gates located in various cemeteries around the French Quarter, which makes me really want to go to New Orleans to do a ghost tour. Oh, yeah. Very popular. You can go to a ghost tour anywhere in North America. New Orleans is the place you want to go. Definitely. Like There's a a few on my list that I'd like to do them, but number one is French Quarter in New Orleans, which came up a lot when I was Googling um, the Gates of Guinea more than anything. Just so it's not so anglicized, New Orleans. Yeah, (laughs) that. There was 1.17 different burial grounds located in this district, which placed Canal Street at the heart of the City of the Dead. And I just want to add at this point that The cemeteries in New Orleans. (laughs) New Orleans. (laughs) New Orleans are so cool looking because the water table is so high, the tombs are above ground. So there's all these cemeteries with all these cool tombs that are all built above ground. Nothing's in the ground because it would just rot it would rot and rise yeah and it's very disgusting disease so they have all these beautiful very creepy cemeteries where we're having this gates of guinea kind of collide with it being where these gates that the dead have to pass through to get to baron smeddy to his gate. Some say that the crucifix form of Baron Samedi's personal sigil, which are symbols, indicate that Canal Street crossroads hide the final gateway to Guinea. And if we want to look more into the Baron sigil or beef, V-E-V-E, beef? V-E-V-E? Yeah. I have no idea. Never I think it's beef as like a map of sorts. It is suggested that the seven gates are found here, plotting the sigil's seven stars onto a network of streets and notable cemeteries surrounding the crossroads. So if you were to take his literal sigil and put it down onto a map, it would map the seven gates leading to Baron Samedi. 
and his seventh gate. If we go by this, a popular theory indicates that the tomb of Marie Laveau, a powerful 19th century voodoo priestess whose remains were supposedly interred into the St. Louis Cemetery Number 1, would mark the first star of the Barents Vive. I think. I'm sorry if I'm getting this wrong. Which would then place the gates of Guinea somewhere around the crossing of Canal Street and Basin Street and the other stars on nearby streets. The order in which the gates are opened is critical. If open incorrectly, the gates can allow dangerous spirits to enter the world we'd reside, which is the living world. If we didn't already know that, we're living. We don't want the dead to come into this Are world. Are we? I, I feel it's just this world. We don't know if we're li- living or oh not. My go- oh my god, no. You didn't just say that. I'm going to ignore that and go on. Okay. <laughs> because that's going to give me a complex. So that open, if you enter it incorrectly, the dead coming to this world, maybe the living coming to this world if we're the dead world, and the person who entered incorrectly takes body and soul back to the land of the dead, living. Whatever it is, we don't want to go to a different realm, all in all. It is also most crucial that anyone seeking not only get the order right, but also pay due respect to the guardian at each gate. So it's very difficult to get into like past Uh, Baron Samedi. This part kind of gives me a lot of undertones, or at least I feel like Hellraiser was heavily inspired by this. That the order of getting everything done, like a puzzle, is very important. And that we don't necessarily want to go to the other worlds because we aren't suited for the other world. Hellraiser is a very good movie. I really like Hellraiser. I like that you draw from that because that isn't even something that I picked up in hellraiser to be honest i well, just no, thought just it was hearing really you describe it, it yeah it fully because i've heard of baron samedi before but i've never heard this, yeah it's just, i it's and really I reminding you looked into this with a lot of interest and hellraiser did not come to mind at all but you are exactly right i guess if you want to put a lot of symbolism into it it does baron samedi seems a lot cooler than pinhead <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. If if I had the choice of having a drink with one of the two, it's definitely Baron Samedi. Baron Samedi. He likes barbecued peanuts and, and cigars rum. and rum. <laughs> yeah. And he just seems like an overall cool guy that and, likes and, swearing. And he could honestly say, you know what? I'm never digging your grave. And you can just say neat. Yeah. I would say more than neat. <laughs> if he didn't want to ever dig my grave, I'd be like, thank you. Or maybe that's a curse or something. I don't know in voodoo. I mean, eventually it would be, yes. But that's a that's a topic for a different episode. Yeah. And I mean, you'd only think of that when you got to that point. But I didn't think about that. But that's a really cool draw from this connection yes. to make. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you have to get it exactly right like a puzzle to get to Baron Samedi in which they say mortals can get there. I don't know why as a mortal you would want to get there and that never occurred to me until I was just saying it right now as a Um, lot of revelations come to me on this podcast. I would encourage you to watch a show on Prime right now called Preacher. Okay. It's a really good show. It's by the creators of, sorry, the comic Preacher is by the creators of The Boys. It draws a lot on New Orleans roots in the fact that the Preacher grew up in New Orleans. 
So it definitely has some voodoo undertones to it. I'm definitely going to take a look into it more after yeah. this. Particularly when it gets into season two, it really starts to become more New Orleans themed. It, it is very Christian and then it turns more into a, a voodoo style show. It's it's mm. I really like I it because it is very lighthearted, but it's a good show. Good. I will. I'm always looking for good shows like that. And and... I'm sorry how it ends because it just ends far past where it needed to end. Oh, no. But it's only four seasons. It's a good show. I definitely want to visit New Orleans after reading this. And I definitely think I'm going (laughs) to look into voodoo a little bit more. It just seems super cool. So yeah, this is like a puzzle to get through. So you need to bring a offering essentially to each Lao, Leo, Loa, Loa, sorry, to pay respect to each guardian at each gate. The guardians are each powerful Loas, like I just said, of death, who are charged with keeping the living out of the land of the dead. So these are the Gede that I said that Baron Samedi are in charge of. And at the time of the powerful voodoo priestess Marie Laveau, who I spoke of earlier, a list was compiled of Gede who guard each gate and should be prepared to meet the guardians in the following correct order with the appropriate offering. So the first gate is Baron Lacroix. The second gate is Gede Nebo. The third gate is Gede Plimage. The fourth gate is Baron Cemetery. Cemetery? Cemetery. That seems right. The fifth gate is Gede Babaco. The sixth gate is Baron Criminel. And the seventh gate of course, none other than Baron Samedi. And that's all I have for the Gates of Guinea. I found it so interesting and it kind of made me more interested in voodoo. I yes. might have missed it. Did they say the right order by chance? No, nobody knows the right order, as far as I gather. Because if we knew the right order, I'm assuming it would be a big thing. It'd be like breaking news on BBC and CNN. Okay. I'm assuming we nobody knows the right order because if you have to have the right offerings, the right order and everything to get into Guinea and be with Baron Samedi, it would be big news. So we don't have it, no. And I I mean, we would be the number one podcast. Yeah. I mean, next week. Should that be our title? When we (laughs) tell you the right order to enter Baron Samedi's seven Vavels. into guinea yeah into guinea yeah vives yeah but that's all but you know what and i just want to say this is not my closing thoughts on the gates of guinea this is just my closing thoughts and i made a note of it just to make sure that i got back to it here i find it so interesting that on basically everyone that we each touched on there's either tests or a certain order to do things in which you have to reach there's trials. The underworld. Yeah, yeah. Once you die or to get into, once you pass on, there's like certain trials, which makes me a little bit nervous that I have to train to make sure that I get to where I'm going once I die. I mean, you passed the one, so you're good to go. I know, but what if I don't get to where I want to go? <laughs> I mean, if it's the Chinese underworld, then you're good to go. I guess so. No. I mean, you're going to get to where you're going to go, but like, what if I can't balance on one foot for three minutes? I thought you did that. I don't think I did. Well, just hope you don't die of old age because then it's going to be really hard to balance on one foot. Yeah. I'm just concerned about where I'm going to end up once I die. 
That's fair. Gonna have to start training. Yeah, Anyhow, that's, that's my closing um, thoughts. We are Journey to the Fringe, reminding you to be able to balance on one <laughs> foot for at least three minutes, practice on both feet to be safe in case they don't give you the option of which foot. And make sure you bring lots of cigars to the afterlife. Bring lots of cigars and rum and always, always, always be sure to have a sparrow in your pocket just in case. Just in case. That is, of course, always after you die. Do not ever have a sparrow in your pocket while you're alive because of the implications. Anyhow, I have been Taylor. I have been Chelsea. And we are both here reminding you that there are underworlds that you can get to, even today, if you just try hard enough. You have to have the right gifts as well. But for the meantime, stay tuned for another spooky episode, and we'll see you next week. Just one more. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes, or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode.